are listening to the Distinctive Christianity Podcast, where we clarify distinctions between Mormon and Credo Christian thought. I'm Brendan, and I'm here with Sky Sky, and uh, we're going to start you off with a nice, uh, encouraging quote here from the manual. Yes. That will help all LDS teachers improve their teaching. Use music, they say. Sacred music invites the influence of the Holy Ghost. It can create a reverent atmosphere and inspire yes. commitment and action. What's Consider sacred music? how teaching and admonishing one of the psalms and spiritual psalms can become a part of your class. Yeah, so we asked Alexa to, you know, play some sacred music. Yeah, what is it? And here's what we got. Church service is already in progress here in Cleveland, Ohio. Seated behind the pedal steel guitar is James Tubby Gold. Come out. Yeah. I feel it. And that Holy Ghost music. Yeah. I love that guitar playing. Quite enough. Quite enough. I love the guitar playing there. Oh, bring it back. Bring it back. <laughs> oh, yeah. I need the reverent atmosphere. <laughs> oh, man. To inspire commitment and action. For real, though, if you need some good music and you've got uh, Amazon Music, then fire up that sacred music. <laughs> yes. It'll <laughs> make for some good study music anyway. Prep so. you for Philippians and Colossians. That's right. That's right. All right. Well... Should we do it? I'd ask you how's the week been, but the reality yeah. is this is our third episode we've recorded this week, so <laughs> that, that question <laughs> wouldn't make much sense right now. Yes. Got another question for you. What is it? If you could have a themed party based on any period in history or fictional universe, what would the theme be and how would you decorate for it? Oh, man. Elizabethan Renaissance. Yep. I could have guessed that. Shakespeare and all that. <laughs> Um, man, I, <laughs> what would I dress up as? Well, yeah. How would it be decorated? I mean, we got, we got the basic idea. Yeah. I mean, you know, Renaissance festivals kind of stuff. That's your thing. I Have you like been to it. that place? Is it in Pleasant Grove? So have yeah, you been there? Can you believe I haven't? Colin and Tracy, Dude, they've gone. You have I think not been there. A few times. Seems like they got a pretty sweet ice skating rink in the winter. That's so cool. Uh, that's how I found about, out about it. I was like, oh. Wow, man! What do they call it? What What is that called when you dress up and act like a? Um, and it's usually Renaissance era. What's that it, called again? Oh, um, <laughs> I don't, I don't. help us out, listeners. I literally have an <laughs> uncle who does it too. Oh, it's like something. It's this amazing it's, beard, and yeah. hair, and yeah. dresses up on a horse and yep, stuff. It's yep. so cool. I think if I had a themed party based on any period in history. Oh man, I I don't know. This is yeah. th this is not my jam. Like, it's not. I'd probably oh, what would I do? I'd probably do like a, more like futuristic, you know? Yeah, Star Wars, like Jetsons. Oh, Jetsons. Yeah, not yeah. not the Jetsons we mentioned last time. I don't, what did Jets, I mention? Jets, <laughs> just oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, not those. Uh, you know what? I would mention, or I would do a party that that goes with whatever that that music we just played, wherever that yeah. is happening. That's me. I'm oh, right there. Man. 
I'm in that. I'm in that. That's what, you know. <laughs> yes. That's, yeah, that, that's my jam. Have you ever been to a church like that? Uh, actually, no. I have not ever been to like a fully gospel African-American church. Oh, man. I loved. Yeah. So I, I got to once. Yep. And um, it was so cool. Yeah. His name is Pastor, I want to say Barnett. Maybe it was Burnett, but Barnett. It'll come to me. But anyway, um, in, you know, just northeast of Houston. And he literally built this barn in his backyard. And, you know, all the instruments and everything. And yeah. Dude, it was it was awesome. Yep. That's and the, crazy. the musicians are so good. The voices sound so good. Yeah. I think I mean I, I think I've mentioned on the podcast before that one of my favorite modern day preachers to listen to is H. B. Charles Jr. And uh, he pastors a church in Florida, and it's definitely more like it, it's a. I mean, it's a. It's not a dominant African American congregation. I don't think. I think it's actually uh, a mixture of of ethnicities, but it certainly has more of the culture of a of the black church. And it's uh, yeah. I watch a lot of those services, and that's awesome. H. B. Charles Jr. is a faithful expositor, but every once in a while he'll 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 get in on that. African American tradition, and they'll start hooping. Yeah, you know, that's what they call yeah. it. I think is hooping. Yeah, you know, when you get get into the sermon, and you say, "I'm trying to tell you." Let's turn the music back on. We need some more. That's right. Yeah, the only true God and Jesus Christ. So good. It's so good. I I think it's great. Six days a week. Yep. Yeah. That's good stuff. <laughs> we should do that through the whole podcast today. Uh, just sing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we're just gonna hoop through Philippians and Colossians because we got two epistles to cover in the yes. next hour. There we that's, go. Uh, this is just um, it's just ridiculous. <laughs> I don't even know anymore. So, um, let's go ahead and jump in. I'm gonna run us through just the what's in the manual and then we're going to fill in some stuff uh, for sure because there's just so much to do. So Philippians and Colossians, uh, two major epistles that are filled with uh, important theology, things that we ought to study and know, things that really we should take our time and slow down on and and really seek to understand uh, what Paul is seeking to communicate under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to us. Um, but here's what we get in the curriculum. Uh, alias people will be covering this from October 9th to the 15th. And the subtitle here is I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. And, uh, they say, begin by reading Philippians and Colossians and prayerfully ponder the doctrine the Lord wants you to teach. Let the spirit guide you as you consider the questions and resources you could use to teach the doctrine. And we've got the typical invite sharing section and then into the teach the doctrine sections, the first set of passages that, uh, they're supposed to read and consider in the class are Philippians two, one to five. 14 to 18, 4, 1 to 9, and Colossians 3, 1 to 17. Just so interesting to see the way that they're trying to group mm-hmm. these things together. Mm-hmm. But 
they are picking up on uh, certainly the concept that we see in Colossians 3, but the subtitle is We Become New as We Live the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, if we were to look at Colossians 3, we would very clear, clearly see that this is not what Paul is saying because we know what the LDS faith means when they say we become new mm-hmm. as we live the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they say, you may want to help class members visualize what it means to put off the old man and put on the old or put on the new man through Jesus Christ. To do this, you might display before and after pictures of something old that has been transformed into something new, such as a piece of furniture, a home or a bike. Class members could discuss how we become new through our faith in Jesus Christ and our willingness to live the gospel. As part of the discussion, you could ask half the class to study Philippians and just list the verses and says, identify within these characteristics of the old man and the new man. And then they say, you could also invite a few class members to share how having faith in Jesus Christ and living his gospel have helped them become new people. So you see their theology of conversion here, obviously, that conversion happens as we become new people by doing the things that we're supposed to do. Um, I, I, I don't know how much we're going to land on this in particular, but I do just have to read Colossians 3, verse 1, because, again, you've got to see they just don't understand what the gospel is and how the gospel and our union in Christ, yes, does lead to us living transformed lives, but you can't ever divorce that from the indicatives. So listen to what just chapter 3, verse 1 in Colossians says. If then you have been raised with Christ. Okay. There's something objective that's happened. You've been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So the basis of all of this, again, is those indicatives of the gospel. You have been raised. You're alive in Christ. You you were dead. You're alive. You were in the domain of darkness. You've been transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. All of this has happened by what Jesus has accomplished, um, and uh, you know we may even get to land some on uh, what he says in chapter two, which is such a just beautiful, beautiful passage of, of scripture. But he says, "In you who were dead in your trespasses, remember what we even looked at very closely in Ephesians last week. In you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Who is it that ultimately accomplished everything necessary for our salvation. It's Jesus. And then we're resurrected in him. We're united to him. And as we walk in him, we do begin to live new lives that are transformed. So what Paul is trying to articulate, and he does so so clearly, and it's amazing how they so easily uh, uh, get this wrong, is he's saying, you are new. You're new. That's the reality that you live in. You were old. You've been made new. You've been resurrected. You've been raised. And now walk according to the newness that you've received in Christ. Put off the old man. You're not that anymore. So don't live according to the flesh, according to the old man. You are new is the point that Paul is making. And so act like what you are, essentially. And so this is something that's only possible for the one who has been resurrected with Christ, objectively. And they've placed their faith in him. Their life has been transformed by the power of the gospel. They are the ones who are able to do the good works that Paul is talking about to do. They are the ones who will truly be transformed from the inside out. 
Okay. So that's a little bit on the first section, and I don't know if we'll, we'll come back to that, but had to just hit some points on that one. Uh, then they jump in the next subsection to Philippians 4, 1 to 13. And the subtitle here is, We Can Find Joy in Christ Regardless of Our Circumstances. And this one is really, I think, the you know definitely the lengthiest one within the Sunday School Manual. Uh, but this is the one where, of course, uh, they get the title, I Can Do All Things Through Christ Who Strengthens Me or Which yeah. Strengthens Me. And uh, it's, again, just about feelings. Um and they say in, in one section here, perhaps class members could share experiences when they felt the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, or when they felt strengthened through Christ to accomplish something they could have not done otherwise. Um, and yeah. then they say, you know, if you'd like to explore this topic further, you might ask class members to share some inspiring accounts or statements from, guess who, President Russell M. Nelson's talk, Joy and Spiritual Survival. Then also give a couple of other talks that they ask their people to reflect upon. And then they get to the end of this subsection and say, because evil is increasing in today's world, our class, your class members will benefit from Paul's counsel to think on things that are pure, lovely, good, uh, and virtuous and praiseworthy. Perhaps you could assign each class member uh, one of the qualities listed there in Philippians 4.8, and they could uh, each use the, the uh, topical guide to find scriptures that are uh, about their assigned quality and share with class what they find. So, yeah, they're supposed to share examples about how we seek after these uh, good things. And then the last subsection that they put here is Colossians 1, 12 to 12-23 and 2.2-8. And here's the subtitle here. Uh, when we are rooted... In Jesus Christ, we are strengthened against worldly influences. Paul's testimony of the Savior found in Colossians 1, 12-23 and 2-8 provides a good opportunity for class members to ponder and strengthen their own faith. Class members could search these verses to find things that strengthen their faith in Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be rooted and built up? And then they say the picture of the tree in this week's outline from the individual and family Come Follow Me manual and uh, they say they say that could be helpful. And then they say also look at the video Spiritual Whirlwinds and use this to discuss the meaning of this verse. What can strengthen or weaken the roots of a tree? How does being rooted and built up in Jesus Christ strengthen us against worldly influences? And then uh, they go on to say you might invite class members to list things that uh, these verses teach we can do to avoid the vain deceit that can spoil our faith in Christ. How can we support each other in our efforts to follow the Savior and avoid Satan's deceptions? All right, so that's what we have in the material. And, uh, of course, that is an extremely brief overview of what you have packed full uh, within Philippians and Colossians. So I'm just going to turn it over to you, Skylar, and run with what you want to run with there. Okay, awesome. I I think that we definitely need to hit the two hymns. Yep. And just as in the Galatians episode, we hit who, what the gospel is. And in Ephesians, the work of the triune God and determining, right, um, those whom he foreknew, he predestined, those who he predestined, you know, the, the yep. golden chain of redemption. Yep. Um, this one, I think is a great opportunity and one that they of course missed in their own material, though I've found some to really hit who is this Christ. 
you know, uh, when I, I really like the the framing of the creeds is basically our attempt, being faithful to the scriptures, to answer, whom do men say that I am? Right? Who do you say that I am? Mm-hmm. And in our creeds, at their best, we are clearly articulating who we mean when we say Jesus Christ. And um, I think they are clear, but they do it in a backdoor way, right? They, yeah. They're since they're an anti-creedal religion, even though they kind of treat their articles of faith like a creed now. But anyway, as a summary to the two letters, uh, I liked this. They say, these two epistles, this is in their seminary manual, these two epistles are consistently positive and optimistic, which is interesting because they just said, as evil is increasing in the world. Um, a little bit of their premillennialism showing. Mm-hmm. Um but these epistles are consistently positive and optimistic, and they contain some of Paul's clearest and most earnest teachings about Jesus Christ. We'd agree. What are they? They never go into it. Paul taught that if we live in faith and gratitude, if we live in faith and gratitude, the Lord can further the gospel cause, the gospel cause through us, no matter what circumstances we might be in. And that by building upon the foundation of Jesus Christ, we can avoid being led astray by worldly philosophies and traditions. Once again, we build our foundation on him using our agency. So they have, they really like the Philippians, you know, verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me or whatever. Um, and they, they, even though they are, it's, it's weirdly anxious about in their seminary manual, manual seeming, to teach works salvation, that we earn our salvation, once again, being unclear selectively, unclear at key moments as the difference between salvation and exaltation. Um, it, it's weird how they project it, though. So they, they at the very bottom, they, they say, does Paul teach that we must earn our salvation? Of course not. Mm-hmm. Right? On, you know, work out your salvation, fear yeah. and trembling. Not reading the full thing. And... They they want to say, no, we don't, and you know, this is definitely one of the worst examples I've seen of trying to say we can't earn salvation. Once again, though, that I wish I could just, you know, a general authority. Cross examination. Mm-hmm. You're paid a lot of money to supposedly speak for the one true church of Jesus. Could I get a QA session? Yeah. Could I get a theological breakdown? I mean, just over-promise, under-deliver. These men are really not that impressive anywhere it actually matters. And this is an example. Well, yeah, they can say we don't earn salvation because salvation's a given. It's universalistic. Everyone is resurrected, right? And then if you just define grace as a power that enables you, then you can still say, well, on the other hand, the degree of glory you achieve is based on your merit. So... Anyway, but they want to say they don't believe that, but I like my Mormonism straight. I like it when Joseph Smith says, you have to learn to become gods yourselves. That's it. That's the point. Um, Whereas they'll have a quote in here that's, you know, um, I would say pretty cute. Um, Reina Alberto of the Relief Society General Presidency, she said this, if you are constantly surrounded by a mist of darkness, turn to Heavenly Father. Nothing that you have experienced can change the eternal truth that you are his child and that he loves you. Remember that Christ is your savior and redeemer and God is your father. They understand. 
Picture them close by you, listening and offering support. They will console you in your afflictions. Do all you can and trust in the Lord's atoning grace. Do all you can and then that. In, in Philippians 3, they want to really talk about, you know, whatever your circumstances, the Savior's anxious to help you progress, right? What would you give or sacrifice, right? The gospel's worth your sacrifice. And um, they talk about how Paul in Philippians 3, and talk about getting it wrong, right? It's, he, he gave up his former life to follow Jesus, but look at the blessings that followed, right? Mm-hmm. So you gave up this life that was leading to these results, well, now you live this life and it leads to those results. And aren't those results so much better? Yeah. Without any notice, no talk of suffering in this one. Yeah. Um <laughs> yeah, and the, and, in the individual yes. family manual, they, you know, turn that all into the gospel of Jesus Christ is worth every sacrifice. Right. Right. Which, once again, not being clear on gospel, not right. And uh Ridges continues that in talking about as if the point was, yeah, I very well could have just continued to live the law of Moses. In fact, I probably have more reason to stay with the law of Moses than most men. Um, I was raised in a strict Jewish home. This is literally Ridge's explanation, right? Um, but I want to be found loyal to Christ, right? In uh, verse 3, 9, uh, or chapter 3, verse 9. When it says found in him, Ridge's, of course, you found loyal to him. Mm. See that? Yep. And um, he talks about um, righteousness, which is of the law, not appearing righteous to others, which is often the goal of those who keep the law of Moses. <sighs> that true righteousness, which is comes through the faith of Christ. In other words, Christ got his through faith. Mm-hmm. We can do it too. And, I assume, you know, yes. even his understanding is the acts of faith, right? Exactly. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure he has the lectures on faith in mind in Hebrews 11, a misreading mm-hmm. of it. Now, interestingly enough, on Philippians 3.11, uh, the Joseph Smith translation changes that. Um, and Ridges makes a lot out of this, that when he says that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He'll say, well, see, here's why some Christians don't think everyone will be resurrected. Um, but Joseph Smith, this is significant doctrinally, significant doctrinally. What Paul is actually teaching is that he hopes to be resurrected with those who attain celestial exaltation. Mm. That's his hope. It's like, of course, we're all going to be resurrected, but Paul is really hoping, he's trying really hard to get that highest degree of glory. And in verse 12, he continues this theme, and it's not as if I had already attained exaltation or were already perfect. So none of the indicatives, none of the in Christ Jesus. Um, and in verse 13, his comment is, in other words, here's how I plan to attain this goal. I leave the past behind to take advantage of the opportunities to do better, which lie before me. So when they include this Dallin Oaks and Renland quote in their manual about how, yeah, of course it's crazy to teach that, Men earn their salvation. It's like, well, have you talked to your, I don't know, institute guy that's writing a manual that's being sold in your bookstore and being promoted this year to help people understand the New Testament? Because he says things like, you have to earn salvation yourselves. You have to earn salvation yourselves. That's what he says. Okay. So, um, 
in the Philippians 4 lesson, it's just about claiming the joy offered by Jesus. How can I find peace in Jesus? They have this quote by Elder Suarez who came up last time and uh, with a doozy about, you know, uh, in Galatians about uh, becoming divine like our heavenly parents. Yeah. And of course, this is in the context of what blessings will come as I seek for peace in Jesus, right? It's not an accomplished peace at all. In fact, it's, it has nothing to do with biblical peace. And uh, if this will work, this quote is worth sharing. Um, let's see here. Sorry. There it is. Uh, uh, Suarez. Seeking Christ in every thought and following him, following him with all our heart requires that we align our mind and desires with his. The scriptures refer to this alignment as standing fast in the Lord, Philippians 4.1. This course of action, you might say course of the world, course of action implies that we continually conduct our lives in harmony, continually conduct our lives in harmony with the gospel of Christ and focus daily on everything that is good. Only then may we achieve the peace of God which passeth all understanding, and which will keep our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus, Philippians 4, 7. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, uh, before we get to the two hymns, hitting Philippians first, I thought I have to at least include the outline from Richard Lloyd Anderson. We don't have enough time to get into all the details. This is worth taking on. Because one thing I will appreciate about Richard Lloyd Anderson is you can tell he at least knows where we would go with the passages, and then he tries to arm LDS against those. Yeah. So with, um, let's see here, with Philippians, it's all about Christ and obedience. These are the main teachings. The most faithful branch of the early church. And notice, see how he, he knows he can't claim the whole early church, mm -hmm. unlike a lot of LDS and LDS general authorities that just kind of imagine, right, project themselves into the past and imagine it as history. This is the most faithful branch of the early church was not exempt from the warning of conditional salvation. They were commended and challenged, which is the key to the apostles' preaching of eternal exaltation. This is his section on Philippians. Yeah. <laughs> Whether discussed in Galatians, Hebrews, or Philippians, continued righteous living is required. Paul's theme, theme verse has been dulled by the traditional conversation, but literally reads, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Right? He continues that in verse. The watchwords to the faithful are the same as to those in danger of apostasy. Stand fast. Live worthily. He goes to the Sermon on the Mount. Re religious people generally feel that good works are important. You know, so that's great. Uh, but those teaching a theology of grace see them as the natural result of grace and minimize the personal moral struggle. That is such a straw man. Yeah. Yeah. Minimize. That's what we do, right? That's what you do every week. Uh, people should listen into your Colossian series. See if you minimize personal moral struggle. Mm -hmm. Yet what could be plainer than Paul's core message to these accomplished saints? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Philippians has several capsule sermons on grace and works, and this is one. Because human effort can be only partial, fear and trembling is trusting the Father's leadership and Christ's atonement in the midst of the confusing pressures of life. But because grace is also partial, the command is to do good works. 
I could go out, go on there. There's a lot of this. Um, he even talks of believing in Christ as a form of obedience. So just as the gospel is law, believing is a form of obedience, which once again, it's contextual, right? Repent and believe. Yeah. Command. But, you know, think of what it, how it operates in this system. He then says in Philippians, uh, uh, he has a section on progressive salvation um, and how we grow in the gospel, right? Already complimented on moral living, right? Has he heard, read First Corinthians? Of course, he wrote about it in this. He really compliments them on their moral excellence, right? They're supposed to improve. And this was the, uh, the gospel to the members, as written to Thessalonica a decade earlier. We'll take that on then. Uh, the purpose of the church was clearly to build character. The purpose of the church. Now, interesting, that's the individualistic version, right? What's the progressive uh, false Christianity version of our day? It's all about society, mm-hmm. right? The, the goal of the church is what? Anti-racism. Not that the church doesn't have a moral call, right? But what is the primary purpose of the church? Right, hospital for the sick, to preach faithfully, preach the word and administer sacraments. No, 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 no. It's to build moral character. Yeah. Right, and this is salvific, right? Um, Philippians do, uh, does not know static salvation, but continual development. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, once again, none of the indicatives. Yep. Salvation is the constant. Sub- All right, anyway, get the point. Let me uh, jump to Colossians really quick, just and then we'll move on from Richard Lloyd Anderson. Once again, I appreciate that he sees sees what we would see, but this one, as you know, we're trying to represent um, creedal Christianity, and here's one that would include, I think, um, every Christian tradition on earth. Of course, each have their liberals, each have their unbelievers, each have their issues, um, but listen to this. Main teachings, Colossians, the Godhead. This is where he's going to go. Later, philosophical ages produced the Christian creeds about God and Christ, but first was the age of the prophets. Peter, Paul, and John wrote and spoke the simpler language of experience. An An example is Paul's moving testimony of the Father and Son opening Colossians. He does not... Yeah. Yet Orthodox Christians look more to councils than to Scripture to explain what they worship. The first four legislative gatherings recognized as binding were called by emperors between the 4th and 6th centuries. A major branch historian, or sorry, a major church historian summarizes their importance. And I thought this was worth including because though we would see the gospel as essential, we agree with Pope Gregory here. Mm-hmm. Uh, on account of their authority, Pope Gregory the Great compared the first four councils to the four gospels because they formulated the basic documents of the church, the Trinity, and the incarnation. I agree with that. I just, because, especially because the Galatians would see the gospel as essential too. And that's where Rome, since Trent, um, is not faithful, at least on their form, formal position. Admittedly, the real source of the Trinitarian doctrine is the Council of Nicaea, right? Because here we go. None of the bishops, right? Were yeah. you know? I don't know. Studying the scriptures, yeah. Uh, a gathering some 318 bishops convened by Constantine. The narrow issue was whether Christ was similar to or the same as the Father. That is straw man, and the latter option was decided and enforced. We're not. We do not say Jesus was the Father. It's just from the latter day saint point of view, the Reformation did not fully reform 
since major Protestant groups rely on councils instead of the plain testimonies of the apostles. I could go on. But he says, apparently, this is evidence. This will tie into something we're going to include here in a minute. Paul consistently separates the Father and the Son verbally, and citing Colossians 1-2. Yeah, we don't confuse the persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. There's only one God. <laughs> Paul is not a polytheist. And Richard Lloyd Anderson knows Paul cites the Shema more than once. Mm-hmm. So he could go on, but, you know, about, you know, the true doctrines about Christ um, that, of course, the Christians don't have um, and that God is material and all that. So at the very end, though, once he gets to the imperatives, this is how he titles the section on Colossians. Developing celestial qualities. That's what it's about. Developing celestial qualities. Because the goal is to live a celestial life to prepare to be with God. And of course, if you were a little more consistent, he would say to prepare to become gods. This is not achieved by mere conversion or even baptism, but is a process that builds on the foundation of the first principles. Uh, Okay, once again, even those first principles clearly are not the indicatives. Clearly no gospel here. And... um, Truly shocking in terms of not even letting his readers better understand why it is we confess what we do. And all these little straw men make it make him able to claim what he does, right? So you, you say, well, they just look to the councils. Mm-hmm. Well, we do look to the councils because we care about how the scriptures have been read in the past. But they're not the authority. The scriptures are the authority. Yep. But see, if you if you continually massage the position, you can create a narrative that's easy to bash and promote something that literally is not defensible from the Bible, which is Mormonism. It, it yeah. is not defensible from the Bible. Yeah. And um, he of all people should know that. And the lengths to which he tries to strong man a position should indicate that that um, is not being unfair. Um, yeah. Should we hit the Philippians hymn? Go for it. Let's do it. Okay. So this, um, what I think is would be helpful is we're going to read through this Philippians hymn. And once again, um, when it's to the level of the hymn, right, the debate's over. And notice, you know, a lot of the debates that are there, this isn't one of them. And this is a big deal because... You know, the standard narrative, even Reza Aslan, whatever, who, by the way, was invited to speak as the supposedly great Bible scholar uh, at Sunstone a few years back. Um, he continues to promote this idea and claim it as scholarship that you have the human Jesus and Mark, and then over time it develops. It's the fish story, right? The big fish story. And then all of a sudden he be, he is the word in John 1.1. Well, there's a problem that either simultaneous to or before, depending on the dating scheme of the Gospels. Um, But long before John wrote, anyway, um, we have this hymn Mm -hmm. to Christ. And this is a sermon illustration. Um, I don't want the sermon illustrate, or or, sorry, our focus on the content of this hymn to distract from in context how it's functioning for Paul, but we just don't need that point right now. This is an example of humility that he's pleading with Philippians 4. So, but... Let's look at this hymn and what it says about Christ. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, 
who, though he was in the form of God, did not count or regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, Mm -hmm. but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, he humbled himself, it's not something the Father does to him, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a, in the garden, no, on the cross, on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, Messiah Jesus was in the form of God, did not see equality. This is a monotheist. These are... (laughs) These are monotheists. He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. And you think of the imagery of the man and the woman grasping for the fruit, right? No, no, no. Jesus didn't have to reach. He is God. Wait, but the Father's God. Yes, Jesus is God. Yeah, yeah. Notice, I can say one God, Father, Son, and Spirit. I really like how Jerusalem, I think it's Jerusalem Pelican, who I really appreciate in terms of his church history work. He talks about how in the debates over the Trinity, the word one is essential. The word three is not. Yeah. As long as you have Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, we say three persons. That's fine. That's orthodox. But it's the one point that is essential. Mm-hmm. It's essential. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. But they're one God, right? The Father is not the Son or the Spirit. The Son is not the Father or the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father or the Son. They are one God. And so here you have this rabbi, this man, who did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. And that's incarnation. How, wait, how did the, at what point? He emptied himself. He chose. This is not, the, the Father is not superior to the Son in the divinity, in the divine nature. Yep. By taking the form of a slave being born in the likeness of men. Notice how humanity is made in the image and likeness of God. Here, this divine person is being born born in the likeness of humanity. In being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is why we can say, on one hand, right, God doesn't change. And God, without ceasing to be God, took on what he was not in the incarnation, took on flesh. Christ is one person, right? Divine nature, human nature. The unity of the person should not be compromised. That's why we can say God bled on the cross. God died on the cross. But we have to understand what we're saying in the unique um, event of the incarnation. Mm -hmm. Therefore, because of this, because of this death, God has highly exalted him, right, in his humanity, and bestowed on him. Notice, notice, 
He descended. He came down. But then there's this exalting feature. So you have the coming down and the going up. What's the going up? It's the human nature of the second person of the Trinity. Um, he And bestowed on him the name that is above it. What is that name? And everybody that's read any part of the Old Testament will see, what is the name? Yep. This is drawing on Isaiah, Joel, other passages, right? Um, this is Yahweh. Mm-hmm. And... Right, this is the Yahweh that shares his glory with no other, he says. And yet here we see a two, right, a, a, at, the, at least so far in this hymn, a binary nature, or binary um, feature to the one God, right? So the name of Jesus, to really emphasize, this isn't, he didn't just seem to be embodied. This Jesus is God. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Who's the Lord? Right, hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Jesus, Jesus, to the glory of whom? God the Father. Okay, I could say say more, but there's just this is so beautiful. Yep, this is so right. beautiful, and it, this is such a testament to how early early this view was and just because we're using words they're not using doesn't mean conceptually there's change yeah yeah um yeah yeah and just to bolster a lot of what you just walked through it's important to know that there's a there are a lot of allusions to isaiah um in this hymn isaiah Mm -hmm. 45 um in particular and in isaiah 45 there are things said about Yahweh there that can only be said about Yahweh. Right. And those things, if you go and do some comparing and contrasting, are the things that Paul is saying about Jesus here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there is, a, there is a direct likening to the fact that Paul is referring to Jesus as Yahweh. And, uh, of course, you, you can't import uh, an LDS worldview into, into thinking what, what or who Yahweh is. Um, mm-hmm. you, you need to have a Jewish understanding yeah. in order to understand who Jesus is. Yes. And uh, that's that's the point. Right. Um, we're, we're talking about Yahweh of the Old Testament, the one and only true God. There is no other maker and creator of all things. And uh, that is who Jesus is. And so there is a oneness that Jesus is a part of. And yet in the revelation, as it unfolds, we see that this one God um, is Jesus and uh, the, the Son and Father and yep. Holy Spirit. And so um, th- that's the, the radical nature of, uh, of the Trinity that New Testament authors are understanding and writing about so that we will understand. And that was sought to be rightly articulated throughout the, the early church and that finally was uh, put down in the Nicene Creed is let's gather together and let's make this clear. But it's not that these sorts of things weren't being discussed or known or talked about even before that. It's just the heresy of Arianism forced the church to say, because it was becoming so popular, let's get together and let's make a statement of faith that can be read at the beginning of people's church services all over the, the empire. Yep. And, uh, and let's make, make sure that that standard is clear so that we can more easily identify the heretics uh, who are there, like Arius. Right. And, and you'll notice the, the quotations we have, Athanasius comes to mind. He's citing this hymn and the Colossians hymn 
quite a bit in these debates. And and yeah, just the Jewish view, the biblical view of God, creator creation, distinction, everything created, including humanity. Look at this. He's in the form of God. And then that's being contrasted with, and then he's being found in human form after he emptied himself. Yeah. This is not uh, heavenly parents propagating their own species as a matter of course. This is the one God who is not a man, humbling himself, emptying himself, and being born in the likeness of men and being found. See, that it's a little more distant. Being found in human form. He is in the form of God. He was found in human form. Yep. For what? To die on a cross. And of course, we have in other places, 1 Corinthians 15, for example, for our sins, for the sins of his people. Now, this is how David Ridges does it. Um, and this will, of course, be easier with the Bibles open. I'm going to hurry up because we got the Colossians hymns to go. But on have the mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, he says. In other words, learn to think like Christ. What? Learn to think like Christ. Verse 6, who looks just like the Father, not taking anything away from the Father's status. See that? Does not account equality with God, the form of God. It's about status. In other words, Ridges, even though Christ, during his mortal ministry, constantly taught that the Father was greater than he, Straw man. Same gospel it says in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Maybe there's something with the two natures of Jesus here. But of course he I don't he doesn't even seem to care what we actually believe. He now has been resurrected and is equal with the Father. He has now been resurrected, is equal with the Father, in the sense that he has completed what the Father asked him to do, and thus the Father has given him all things, D&C 76. Therefore, he has entered into his exaltation, just as all faithful saints will, when all that my Father hath shall be given unto them, D&C 84. On verse 7, he did not seek glory for himself, okay, and took upon himself a mortal body. A mortal body. That's what it's about. No, it doesn't say that. It's talking about the form. It's the substance. Yep. And then um, he he even mentions crucifixion, and not the garden. I didn't see any garden. I guess seventy polemic there. And then verse nine, because of that, the Father has given him exaltation. See this the way his father did, the way his father did. On verse, um, so it, it's that that's his take on the the hymn to to throw in just a couple more. Because this flows right into another verse that Richard Lloyd Anderson in the manual lands on, right? Where it says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, keep reading. For it is God who works in you, not with you, in you, both, <laughs> right? To will and to work for his good pleasure, for his yeah. good pleasure. So, Whereas, listen to this. This is he says, we have an acute awareness of how important it is to be righteous, not to belittle righteousness per se, but see how it's functioning in the system. And he says once again, it's God who works with you to help you to want to be truly good as well as to do good. He includes this quote from David O'McKay, 
Uh, this is a president of the church, a very influential president of the church. Um, in fact, kind of the start of modern Mormonism is David O. McKay. And he actually comments on this verse. To work out one's salvation is not to sit idly by dreaming and yearning for God miraculously to thrust bounteous blessings into our laps. See the mocking? Mm -hmm. It is to perform daily, hourly, momentarily, if necessary, the immediate task or duty at hand, and to continue happily in such performance as the years come and go, leaving the fruits of such labors either for self or for others to be bestowed as a just and beneficent father may determine. That's in General Conference, April 1957. So notice, yeah, you get a wrong Christ, of course you get a wrong gospel. Yeah. Because what do you do with the incarnation? What do you do with the cross? They, it, it doesn't fit the example paradigm. Yep. Should we hit Colossians? Yeah, my, my turn. Okay, please. <laughs> so so um, uh, let me just frame this by using the subtitle that they use in the Come Follow Me uh, Sunday School Manual. They say, when we are rooted in Jesus Christ, we are strengthened against worldly influences. And they do have a lot of visual imagery and the lessons and whatnot about being rooted in Jesus. And of course, all that is about what, in their view, you do to root yourself in Jesus, all that stuff. The question that they never ask or address is how do you make sure you're rooted in the right Jesus to begin with? And of course, if we were to look at this verse on being rooted in Jesus, uh, we would see first off that the rooting isn't something that we do anyways. It's a, one of those famous divine passives that we talk right. about all the time that, that when we have been rooted in Christ, that's something that God does. He roots us in Christ. Uh, but we need to make sure that we're rooted in the right Christ to begin with, and we need to know that that passage about being rooted in Christ comes after this uh, famous hymn in Colossians, where Paul labors to make sure that he is clear on who Jesus is. You, you need to make sure you're rooted in, in the true Jesus and not in some of the Jesus of your own conception. And this is important because uh, of what he says right prior to this hymn as well. He says, May be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Who qualifies you to share in the inheritance? You don't qualify yourself. Nope. We've covered that over and over again. I just read it in Colossians 1 there. Go look at it yourself. This is good news for you. Um, if, if you're LDS, if you're ex-LDS and you're listening to us, I, I just want you to know that the true gospel says that you don't qualify yourself. The Father qualifies you to share in the inheritance. Now, how does that happen? Well, here you go. He has delivered us. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Here's what that's saying. Paul is a supernaturalist. He has a supernatural worldview, and we should too as Christians. We know that this world is made up of wicked, evil spirits, demonic spirits, and good spirits, uh, angelic beings, and uh, the Holy Spirit, and uh, spiritual beings uh, exist uh, in this world that, uh, that we live in, and uh, around this world, and all over the place. And Part of that means that there are dark spirits that are part of this domain of darkness that are seeking to thwart the purposes of God by keeping people entrapped in lies. And that's what uh, God saves us 
from in Jesus and in the work that Jesus does. Um, how does he save us? Well, it's through redemption and forgiveness of sins. Um, so, so he delivers us from this domain of darkness. He transfers us into the kingdom of his beloved son. And in Jesus, we have what Paul calls here redemption of forgiveness of sins. Why does that matter? Well, the domain of darkness works through lies, and primarily those lies are lies of accusation. You're not good enough. You're not measuring up. You need to try harder. You need to do more. Uh, whatever else uh, we may try to convince ourselves we need to do in order to earn the favor of God or earn the right to live the good life or whatever it may be. And Jesus takes all that away because in Jesus, you're fully and completely forgiven. Uh, there is no more condemnation. You have redemption in him. And so Satan's accusations have nowhere to go anymore. The domain of darkness has no, nothing more that they can do to lie to us and tell us something that is untrue. We have, we've been delivered by Christ. And then he goes to, on to clarify who this Jesus is. He says, he is the image of the invisible God. Uh, that is a beautiful beautiful phrase. And uh, the the image, I, we, we could reflect on a lot of things there, but the, the image just now is uh, is an eternal divine image that Paul is talking about. He, he's not writing here on the front part of this hymn uh, to say that Jesus is a mere representation of God. No, he actually says, when he says he is the image of God, a lot of faithful scholars have rightly pointed out that that phrase is is the image, is there is what's called a gnomic present, meaning that it's a timeless present. It's a it's a present that is used in the Greek to make reference to something that cannot be captured within time. So so what Paul is saying there is Jesus has always been the image of what the visible God? No, the invisible God. God is invisible. God is spirit. And so Jesus has been this in this image of this invisible God for all eternity. So the Son of God then is part of the invisible God. And you got to remember how that would have been understood in a Jewish conception. The invisible God is the God who created all things, the God who is sovereign and ruler over all things. And Paul moves next to give that attribute to Jesus as well. He says he is the firstborn of all creation. And when he says firstborn of all creation— he is not saying that Jesus was born. Um, he is not saying that Jesus was created. Um, the, that imagery of the firstborn is used in Psalm 89 in reference to David. And if you go look at Psalm 89, it's talking about how God has set up David as a, as a king over Israel, but it's also very much foreshadowing this future king that's going to come and is going to establish an even greater rule and reign than David himself had. And in Psalm 89, uh, that, that the psalmist refers to David as the firstborn. Well, the, David was not the firstborn of his family, if you know how that works. And so firstborn is not meant to be understood in a literal sense here. It's meant to be understood as the one who has all the rights, all the privileges. That would have been the understanding in a Jewish conception. And so to say that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, I think Paul has Psalm 89 in mind. And what he's saying there is Jesus is the one who has all the rights and all the authority over the creation. He is this messianic king. He is this one that has been long anticipated. So we've established he's the eternal, visible, invisible image of God. He's this, He's uh, as we would put it in our Trinitarian formulation, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. He's been imaging God for all eternity. 
authority. He has all rights and authority as God. He, he, this is a statement of his kingship. This is also a reference to his eternal rule, um, his rights over all things. And if it wasn't clear enough that he is this and has all authority, Paul goes to make all what he's saying about Jesus explicitly clear in verse 16, where he says, for by him, yes, by this Jesus, by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Paul couldn't have said it any more clearly than what he says right here in this verse. The Jesus he is talking about is the one who created everything. And again, you cannot import an LDS understanding into this creation narrative. A Jewish understanding of the creator God is that there was a God higher than all the other spiritual beings who created all the spiritual beings, who made all things, who is the sovereign king, the ruler over all creation. And that's the God that the Jews, of course, worshiped and called Yahweh. He is the maker and creator of the heavens and the earth. He is the Lord over all things. Um, so Psalm uh, 145.3, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. Their, their mentality towards this God who made all things is that he ought to be worshiped. He ought to be praised. He is above everything. And there's only one. There's only one. The Shema, as we bring up over and over again. So this one creator God is Jesus, but Father as well and Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. Again, our creedal formulations are only giving us a framework to explain what we see in the Bible. In all of the Bible. Yes, and all of the Bible, understood as a whole. Because, of course, Paul is teaching us Old Testament theology. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what he's doing. He's explaining who Jesus is through the lens of the Old Testament. So we keep on moving through this hymn says, for by him all things are created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers and authorities, all things are created through him and for him. By the way, can I just say here that the the uh, heresy that was going on uh, in the false teaching of the Colossian false teachers was that the Jews needed to, uh, well, the, the Christians needed to participate in these kind of Jewish rites. I think it's a Jewish mysticism that's going on here. I think it's a, a folk religion that was just unique to the uh, Colossian region, but has a lot of similarities to Gnosticism, and Gnosticism probably grew out of some of this sort of stuff eventually. But in any case, what the false teachers are telling the people is you need to have more than just Jesus. You need to be having these spiritual experiences. You need to be having these revelations. You need to you need to be having all of these you know feeling sort of moments. And there's ways that you can experience those. And those are by doing what we say as the false teachers you should do: be harsh on your body, do all this stuff. Um, you can find all these things laid out toward the end of of chapter two in terms of what the false teachers exactly were saying. But the point that they were trying to make is Jesus is just one of the things that can be used for like a spiritual experience, but you need more than Jesus and the really spiritual people know that. And so why don't you come and participate in this Jesus plus stuff with us? And Paul's trying to write to say, okay, Jesus is the one who made all the spirits that are behind these experiences that you're having. So worship him. Don't, don't run after these lesser spiritual beings that are behind these revelations that you're receiving or whatever it may be. Jesus, Jesus is who you worship. And so he created all things, but not only that goes on in verse 17, he's before all things and in him, all things hold together. So who's the one who's holding everything together right now? It's Jesus. This is Paul 
making clear reference to Jesus being really even the what the philosophers were trying to chase after and understand. What what is the substance, the thing that's out there that holds everything together? You know, what what is this uh, supreme being? What is the unmoved mover? Like what what holds all things together? And Paul saying, Jesus, he is the one who holds everything together behind. All that the philosophers even sought was not an idea or an abstraction. It was a person, the person of Jesus who created all things. He is holding everything together. That's right. A lot of things could be said on that front too that probably just don't have time to get into. But now in verse 18, he turns, and this is amazing because this is a chiastic structure in this hymn. The first half of the structure uh, articulates who Jesus is is the eternal image. So it's focusing on his deity. And then the back half of the chiasm unpacks who Jesus is as the incarnational image. So Jesus is the internal image of God. And man, we don't have time to get into all this, but so good. the way all this connects is into understanding the Genesis narrative. Um, God created humankind and he made us in his image. Well, in whose image? He made us in the image of the divine, perfect, eternal image. So all humanity is created in the image of God to image the image. And who is the image? The image is the, the eternal Son of God. So all creation is joyfully uh, created by the Father, created by Jesus, uh, through the through the you know life-giving Spirit to image and glorify Jesus. That's what we yeah. exist for. So so we're made in a creational image to image God. Well, that image got marred because of sin. We we blew that thing up. We messed that thing up in in our sin. We tur- we turned inwardly towards selfishness, toward living for me myself and I and and we no longer care to rightly image the eternal image and to bring glory to God by doing that the way that he has created us to do. And so that's the significance of Jesus coming down on coming down to earth. The eternal image took on flesh, condescended into earth and became the creational image. Why? So that he could redeem us through his perfect work as the creational image. Jesus became and was in his incarnation and in his life everything that we were supposed to be. He, he, he restored that image, uh, show, showed us what that image is supposed to be, but also did it so that he could redeem us so that we can be renewed and restored and reconciled into that image again. So Paul on the latter half here is talking about Jesus as that. And he says in verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Again, this is just imagery that is mirroring the things that we, we already saw uh, the firstborn from the dead, of course, telling us about Jesus dying and being resurrected. He's the firstborn to come back from the dead so that we can rise from the dead in him one day, uh, already spiritually, but one day uh, physically as well, that in everything he might pre- be preeminent because he is the eternal image and he is the perfect incarnational image. He should be first in everything. He's first in all creation. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That is an amazing it's statement. Just, in the incarnational yeah. image in Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In other words, don't go looking for fullness in other places. Yeah. And uh, Paul, I, I just preached on this text in, uh, in Colossians 2. Uh, Paul articulates this once again in, uh, let's see, 
Where, where am I? Where am I looking here? Start of verse. Let's start in verse uh, six. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, established in faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Um, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, not according to Christ. Listen, for in Him, in Christ, this incarnational uh, image, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and the the phrasing in that line the whole fullness of deity doesn't mean that jesus filled himself up with some of the deity that was available um no the point is that all that all of all of uh the fullness of what deity is was in jesus not just a quality you can attain right jesus is the the only he is deity yes yes the substance of god not just the qualities of god that's right so in him all the fullness is pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile all things whether on heaven or earth making peace by the blood of his cross um and that's just saying that jesus in his incarnational work came to reconcile this broken creation to restore it to what it was meant to be. And in him, all things will be restored. And so the the Christ that Paul worships and the Christ that you should worship too, dear listener, is the Christ through whom, for whom, and to whom everything was made. The, the whole world was made that Jesus would be worshiped, that Jesus would be praised. And, and there's not other worlds or other creations out there, all things that are made have been made, were made by him, through him, for him. And he came and rescued this broken creation that rebelled against him, that all things would be reconciled to him. And of course that doesn't, this isn't teaching a universal salvation. Um, This is actually teaching that those who are in him will be fully restored and reconciled. And part of a new creation is what, Paul goes on to make clear in the rest of Colossians and those who do not find themselves in him will be judged and punished and all evil and wicked doers will be put away into a place of eternal judgment um, under the righteous, just hand of almighty God. Um, So that's the Jesus that we're called to worship and any other Jesus that you may be worshiping is a fabrication. Um, It's a, it's a false God. Yes. it, It is demonic spirits, that are uh, giving that sense of God to you, uh, a sense of power, uh, a sense of truth, but it's a lie if it is not objectively the God that the true apostle, Apostle Paul, lays out here in the scripture. So, friend, let's just say, are you worshiping him? And uh, if if you are, then uh, praise God. If not, then turn from whatever false idols you're worshiping. They're empty. They're not going to give you life. They're not going to fill you ultimately. Uh, can they make you feel? Yes. Can they fill? No. And uh, that's an important yeah. distinction because well we're talking about spiritual fullness here that the soul, every every human soul desperately needs. Um, so is that the Christ you're rooted in, my friend? If, uh, if you're not rooted in that Jesus, then you're not rooted at all. And uh, you need to you need to run to him. You got anything else? Just, I'll, I won't go in verse by verse, but David Ridges, of course, has a very different view of this passage, right? So once again, on verse fifteen, Christ looks just like his father, and it, the father's invisible in the sense that you know he can't be seen by people unless he chooses to appear to them, or you know he's really far away. He's kind of busy right now, so invisible is not invisible, right? Um, and of course he looks just like his father. So is his father, a white man with blue eyes too. 
Just curious. Um, important doctrines from this, though. It's funny. He lands on this. He's not, he's not ashamed of this passage, David Ridges. He says, no, no, no. The Savior looks just like the Father. He's the image of the Father physically and spiritually, in person and personality. They look alike. In appearance, one could pass for the other. Once again, white man, blue eyes. And if you want to become like God, uh, you can see the racism still there. Spiritually, our Lord is in the form of God. This is what he says. He has acquired all of the attributes of godliness in their perfection. Wow. As it is with the Father, so it is with him. And then he lists some virtues and then says, thus he is in the likeness of and a projection of the personality of the Father. And then second, the Savior is the firstborn of all of Heavenly Father's spirit children. We've already mentioned with that. Verse 16, things that we can see with our eyes and things we can't see with our eyes, such as other worlds in the universe. See, there's no transcendence. There's no creator-creation distinction there. And then for him, he says, for the Father. He, does, he changes this. It's not for Christ. He says the Father, but of course, keep in mind, they don't have a God in the person of the Father either. So um, it's, and then who is the beginning, who has helped us from the beginning in pre-mortal life. And then firstborn from the dead, he does the same thing he does with 1 Corinthians 15, the first one resurrected on this earth, mm. on this earth. Because keep in mind, resurrections have been in other worlds, and he's just doing what his father did, and he's doing what his father did. And, of course, it was the Father's will that the fullness of the gospel would be made available. And in verse 20, having made it possible for us to be at peace through the forgiveness of sin, through Christ's atonement. And then, of course, reconcile just means harmonize yourself. The hope of the gospel in verse 23 is that exaltation, which is available to you. So I just hope through these two hymns of the early, the earliest church, and, of course, without imagining an earlier church that somehow did... <laughs> Who gets to define Jesus? Maybe this is this all in it. Who gets to define Jesus? Right. You have two people that are sincere. I would hope people would grant our sincerity. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's say there's LDS listeners. I don't, I'm not here to attack your sincerity. Yeah. I'm here to attack false Jesuses. I'm here to attack your theology and your lack of commitment to the actual apostolic witness to the Christ, who, as we see in this hymn, and if you compare these two hymns together, they are. They are a bulwark against heresy, these two together. This Christ is on the creator side of the creator-creation distinction. He is the one God with the Father and the Spirit, one being three persons. And that is the Jesus of the Bible. We're not waiting for Nicaea. We have it here. And my plea is that this triune God in Christ clothed with the gospel would be what you become loyal to. And by God's grace, you'll be able to. But I hope at least intellectually you see the distinction. This is not the same. This can't be covered over with I love Jesus and you do too, or you love Jesus, I do too. No, no, no. Who is this Jesus? As Jesus himself said, what man, who do you say I am? And that was different from what the world thought. Yeah, and, and Jesus makes clear in the book of John, yeah. if you don't get his deity right, nope. you will die in your sins. Exactly. He says uh, He says that exactly. Mm-hmm. If you don't believe that I am he, and the he, if you look at the context there, is that he is God. Um, he is Yahweh. Yeah. Jesus says, if you don't believe I am he, you will die in your sins. So you, you've got to be rooted in the right Christ. That's the point that we keep on trying to pound down on. And I know sometimes LDS people struggle with all of the legitimate 
spiritual experiences that they've had. And we wouldn't negate the legitimacy of those spiritual experiences. Um, There are real spirits in the world. And uh, what Paul is even dealing with in Colossians is that reality, that there, there are people who are having spiritual experiences as they stretch outside of Christ and, and try to tamper and mess with other things. And, and they're finding, Oh, this is exciting. This is thrilling. And, a lot of times people just struggle with, well, I had experiences that confirmed the truth to me. Like I, I had lots of experiences even. And the the danger is that in a spiritual world that we live in, as we do, there can be all sorts of true spiritual experiences that are aspects of the domain of darkness and not the kingdom of the beloved son. How do you know? Well, do you have the Christ of scripture? Yeah. Are you worshiping him according to his standards according to the way that he has laid out in the Bible through true apostles and prophets. And if you don't have that to anchor you, if you don't have that to be rooted in, to use the rooted language again, then you're going to be susceptible to every wind and wave of doctrine to be tossed about, you know, to be thrown to and fro in any and every direction on the basis of your feelings and your emotions. And uh, that's the concern is you can't trust your feelings Feelings can be given and they can feel really good and they can seem like they are light. Satan comes disguised as an angel of light. Uh, They can seem like they are true and they can all be built on a foundation of demonic influence rather than the true Christ of scripture. And uh, that's one of the hardest things from what I've heard and people I've talked to for LDS people to understand and embrace is the fact that those experiences I've had and those experiences I've, I've, I've heard people talk about over and over again and testimony meeting or whatever else, those were all under demonic influence. Yeah. And yes, that's what we're, that's what we're saying yeah. because they're not according to the true Christ. Yeah. And I had them, you know, yeah. I, I can speak from personal experience. Maybe some other time we have more time, but I, I can speak from that experience of, and, and even the trauma of recognizing what I experienced in terms of its truth content was false. Yeah. And not knowing what to do with the deception from within and without that yep. I do, I do think there was an actual spiritual experience. Yep. Um, here, here's how the triune God in Christ clothed with the gospel ties to sins here. And this is another biblical teaching that's so obvious. Sometimes we just don't say it. Only God can forgive sins. That's, right. that, that's it. Not Moses. Only God can forgive sins. May I end with this? Absolutely. This is the healing of the paralytic. Let's use the gospel of Mark. Mm-hmm. You know, this is supposedly the, the human uh, yeah, Jesus that's, that's right. not God yet, right? In the minds of the early Christians. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but the one God, but God alone? And that's the Shema. A lot of commentators see that. But the one God, only God can forgive sins. Who's this man to speak like this? 
And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in the spirit, and by the way, only God can read hearts. That's also taught in the Bible. Jesus, though, he immediately, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? In other words, the miracle is to show that, that it's to give evidence <laughs> of what he's saying It's in the place where we cannot see, because it's actually invisible, not just because it's far away around a star collab. No, no, it, we can't see the spiritual world, at least as we are now. And maybe never, I don't know. But the point is, no, 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 I'm, ge- I'm healing this man of his sickness. You can trust what I just said of his sins. And notice that the familial son, your sins are forgiven you. And he says, rise, take up your bed and walk. And that you may know that the son of man who is God in Daniel 7 has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Mm-hmm. So he's not only made whole in his body, he's made whole with, you know, socially. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed. And who do they glorify? God, saying, we never saw anything like this. That is the God of the Bible. That's the triune God in and as Jesus Christ clothed in his gospel. Amen. Next week, First and Second Thessalonians, and uh, well, listen to this subtitle: "Perfect that which is lacking in your faith." Oh. Oh. We'll see you then. <laughs>